I totally believe that having a family makes you a better scientist and having a family makes you a better leader and having a family makes you a better director. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi, everybody. My name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely, Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. My name is Susan Gasser. I study chromosome structure and function at the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel, Switzerland, and I'm thrilled to be able to share my tips with the Lonely Papette. Susan Gasser completed her BA with honors her thesis in biophysics at the University of Chicago and then did her PhD in biochemistry at the University of Basel in Switzerland. She studies how human mitotic chromosome structure at the University of Geneva with Ulrich Lemley. And then she launched her own research program working on budding yeast at the Swiss Institute for Experimental Cancer Research in Lausanne. In 2001, she returned to the University of Geneva as a professor of molecular biology. And from 2004 to 2019, she was the director of the Friedrich Mischer Institute for Biomedical Research, which is called the FMI. And she also holds a professorship in molecular biology at the University of Basel. Her group is interested in how the functional and spatial packaging of chromatin contributes to heritable patterns of gene expression. Since March 2019, um, she's the Director Emeritus of the FMI. Susan has many prestigious awards, I won't list them all, but including election to the Académie de France, the EMBO, the AAAS and the Swiss Academy of Medical Sciences. She's received many prizes, including the INSOM International Prize in 2011, the FEBS EMBO Women in Science Award, the Weizmann Institute Women in Science Award. Susan, thanks for coming to give tips to the Lonely Pipette. Thank you, Suzanne, to be with us today. We love to, to start our interview with what we call starter questions. And I love to say that I love to ask the origin story of who is here with us today. And so my first question would be, can you tell us how you decided to become a scientist? Okay, so it was very late. I was probably 22, late in some ways, because people are always saying, you know, they knew they were a scientist when they were 13. Uh, I wanted to be an international politician. I had this idea of, I don't know, exotic travel. Uh, and I studied uh, philosophy and classical literature uh, at a private university. But then we were studying Darwin, reading Darwin, original works, and we were dissecting this dog chart, and it had these lungs and vestigial gills, and reading about vestigial organs in evolution. And I l really loved this juxtaposition of the concrete reality of these remnants of evolution, and then discussing the theory of evolution. So Even though that was like a very theoretical reason to study biology, I realized that you could connect what I liked about philosophy with a reality. I mean, really concrete reality. So I switched from studying philosophy to biophysics, molecular biology, biochemistry, basically. 
and uh, I never looked back. I'm very happy. So, so that's interesting. I, I do a lot of uh, interdisciplinary research projects, and and I wonder, do, do you think you do biology differently because you did philosophy first? Because did you bring some of the philosophy with you? Um, I think so. Um, I think because I love the abstraction part and and the questions. So the the first thing I always teach my students is, what is the question? <laughs> <laughs> Not what experiment you're going to do. But what is the question? And then they come to me with a lot of results and, and they tell me all their results. And then I say, but what was the question? <laughs> and, and I think um, because in the, when I was studying philosophy, we had lots of seminars and every seminar started with a question. In philosophy, there are more questions than answers, right? <laughs> That's right. But it's the whole dialectical side of, of working through a question. So um, I think that was my as we say, deformation professionnelle from the beginning, mm -hmm. you know. But, I, you know, I've become very concrete. And the quantitative side of science really appeals to me. And in fact, I was disillusioned with philosophy anyway. It wasn't just the pickled shark. I realized that I, I missed the real world when I was studying philosophy. It, it, it works. I, I think I have married a little bit different fields, but I'm much more a scientist than a philosopher. So, so you said you, you, you may have been a little disillusioned with philosophy. Have you ever had moments of disillusionment with science and thought about leaving and doing something else, going back to philosophy or doing something else? Oh, yeah. Very early on, I did. Actually, it was just after finishing my um, honors thesis, which was actually a research project as an undergrad. And um, it was successful. Amazingly, it was a PNAS paper as an undergrad, wow. first author. So I was, you know, first I was in love with science because, you know, I could actually produce something useful. And then I learned that my project was identical to a PhD student in a lab three, three or four floors below, and that he was furious that I had done this. And I was totally naive. And this so hurt me that I could hurt someone so in, unintentionally, but just by doing these experiments that somebody told me to do, that I... I actually thought, no, I, you know, I'm not going to do science because it, it creates problems. But then, uh, of course, then I studied with Jeff Schatz and he was such a completely different person. Um, he cared about people. He, you know, he never would have put two people on the same project or even, you know, allow you to compete with someone without telling them, you know. So that completely reversed my one moment of doubt. But. <laughs> Never, never again would I have given up after my PhD. I became completely in love with research science. So you mentioned one of your mentors. Can, can you think of uh, mentoring practices that you got from your mentors and that you have used in your own lab? Well, one is uh, choosing favorite papers, old favorite papers, and reading them with the students and reading them, you know, like basically line by line or figure by figure, but really taking old papers. So actually, I guess they weren't that old at the time, but I was a student like in 1980, I mean, a PhD student in 1980, and we read Lee Hartwell's uh, 1974 cell cycle paper where he identified all the temperature-sensitive cell cycle alleles. I was doing biochemistry. I wasn't doing any genetics, but Schatz felt this was a fundamental paper. We read it so carefully, and it was just like unfolding a whole world of genetics just in one paper. So I, I do that. Do you have some favorite papers that you like your students to, to read as sort of paradigms? 
Yeah, well, I still <laughs> I, I still use the Lee Hartwell, the Lee Hartwell. one. But, uh, but there are many others. I think um, nucleosome mapping, some of the first, Hewish and Burgoyne, where you get a ladder of nucleosomes. This is fantastic. <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody knew how DNA was organized, and they came up with this repeating unit. Beautiful stuff. Just one gel, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a Bonnie Brewer early paper on the timing of replication. Also, uh, something just beautiful. Her papers were always so beautiful to look at. You know, every figure was so perfect, that one. And then, of course, close to home. Uh, I usually have even my students now read some of the early Lemley papers about chromosome organization, even though they're outdated. I mean, outdated because techniques are so different now. But they're really fun to read, I think. That's that's the important thing. And they should learn that, you know, reading science can be fun. It can be like reading a novel, you know. It can be like, it's not just gaining knowledge. And when we write, we shouldn't just think, you know, I'm going to put A, B, C down. Tell a story. Tell people why you're excited about that result or why you thought to do the experiment in that way. Do you think the older papers had more storytelling? Do you think we've lost a bit of that? Well, yes and no. Because at the time, generating data took a lot longer, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so the stories were less complete. So it really was all about the question. So when you wrote a paper, you had a question. And then you did a few experiments, because that's what you could do. And then you philosophized about it or interpreted it. I, I hope it's not lost. I think it's the way science should be done. I don't think it's lost, but I do think we're in data overload and that that impairs our ability to make a story interesting. Do you have uh, examples of bad mentoring advice that you've heard from colleagues? Oh, of course. Well, I, I think the absolute worst thing ever is to put people within a laboratory or within a group uh, competing against each other. I think this is the world's worst concept. And I, and I know people do it. I have people work in teams, and actually Schatz did that to a certain extent. So I remember working very closely with a postdoc and with a sabbatical guest, and really as a team. I mean, really, we would do experiments together. We would, you know, and I do that as much as possible to have people work together in teams. The antithesis of that is to have people competing. I always think of my lab as a family and some like each other more than others. That's normal. But I would never put oil on the fire and encourage them to uh, compete with each other. That's one aspect of mentoring. The other is I'm a pretty tough critic, but I never let it get personal. <clears throat> some people you know, if, if you criticize their experiment, they take it personally. Mm -hmm. But as soon as possible, I get them to realize that nothing I say affects the way I think about them as a person. So that's a very important thing for any group leader to know, that you have to respect that person as a person, or else just don't hire them. But if you chose them, now you have to respect them as a person. Now, maybe they're good at this or that or not good, and maybe they make mistakes, and maybe they're lazy on some weeks or something, but nothing that you criticize about their science or about reasoning or that they do or do not know something, none of that reflects them as a person. And as a person, you've chosen them, that you've brought them into your family, and you have to believe in them. So this is mentoring for group leaders. And what would be bad mentoring is making remarks that are taken personally. 
as you said, there are some person you, you don't mean for them to take it personally, but sometimes some people take it. Have you found yourself in this situation and what could you do to tell them to not take it personally or to let them know, for example, that this is not personal? Take them out for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, go or go jogging together or something, you know, just let them know that, you know, there's another side to life. And of course, uh, I mean, you always expect the most out of everyone. You you have high expectation. That's part of mentoring as well. But I think it, it's the point to let people know you like them as a person. You chose them because there was something good about we could communicate well, we could get along well, there was lots of potential. And of course, if I criticize the science or the results or something they did, that's to help them get better mm -hmm. in my vision of what's better. I also always tell them, you know, I may be wrong. Mm -hmm. And for, for, for young scientists that are about to, to go to find a mentor, what do you think they should look for? What are some practical tips for them to find a good mentor for, for their career? I always tell them you should feel at ease talking to this person. That's a difficult thing to say because when you meet somebody new and maybe you're being interviewed you maybe just don't feel at ease. That's maybe a lot to ask. But usually by the end of the day or two days of an interview, let's say, you should be able to feel that this is a person, you know, you could go have a beer with, you know, that, mm -hmm. that or glass of wine, wherever, whatever you like. Cheese. <laughs> But, um, you know, you have to have that gut feeling that this is somebody you like. You need to choose somebody you admire, or at least you think you admire. And above all, you talk to other people in the laboratory and make sure that some of those bad mentoring habits are not there. Because sometimes very impressive people have some bad mentoring habits. And in my experience, now speaking as an institute director, when I see people with bad mentoring habits, it's usually because they were badly mentored. It's something you learn as a student and postdoc, and then you transmit when you become the group leader. You can even, it's almost like a lineage, you know, you can <laughs> trace it, but people can become aware of this. Yeah, I mean, even late in life or whatever, you know, after you've already run a lab and made some mistakes, you can realize that, mm, you know, when I put people on the spot like that, they're feeling bad, then I really need to change that habit. Yeah, I, I think as a group leader, you evolve and you become more and more self-aware And then you're aware of the impact you have on people. And when you were the director, did you have um, examples of, of times where you worked to improve the mentoring of the younger colleagues there? Did you call people out and took the mentors for a, a beer or for a jog? Or <laughs> yeah, sure. Actually, we even would give coaching. Really? Not by me. I didn't think that was the proper thing. It was only from me. First, to kind of raise the problem, like, you know, maybe you realize this and that, or, you know, there's some people have come to me and discussed this. I would be really upfront, not blaming them, but just saying, are you aware? And sometimes that would be enough. But in other cases, they're very good coaches for leadership, external uh -huh. coaches. Because we, we, we had this discussion uh, with uh, another guest before, did you ever take a coaching or did you ever recommend it to someone to take a class or? Absolutely. So after, I don't know how many years, maybe after five years of running the Institute, 
I had a, a personal coach. I think it's much more common in industry. And so my institute is uh, supported by Novartis. And I think everybody in a management level that I had was offered coaching. And it, this was a private personal coach that I met with over six months discussing. They do these kind of personality coding stuff, which is semi-bullshit because, <laughs> well, in 15 minutes, I could have told him, you know, I am like this, 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 this. You know, I'm 55 years old. I really know what I'm like, you know. So what what did you get out of the coaching? Because I, I intuitively feel that we could coach not just young PIs, but also institute directors. What did you get out of the coaching? Um, very much an awareness of all the different situations you find yourself in, how others perceive you. And this is really the key to being a good leader, because sometimes, even if you're head of an institute, in other situations, you'll be sitting around a table and you're the lowest of the, on the chain there, or you're among peers, and this isn't a situation where you're projecting leadership. So what I really learned was measuring the situation and measuring how other people interpret some very trivial, I would say, almost spontaneous reactions I might mm. make. You can say it quenches your spontaneity, but it doesn't really. I think you, you learn how others perceive you. And if your intentions are correct, which is to be a good leader or to be a good mentor or to be a good whatever, then this is all positive. So I felt it was an extremely positive thing. And, and anybody I know moving into a leadership position where they have to do tasks that they've never done before, like speak in front of 300 people or guide group leaders or guide an administrative team, I strongly recommend coaching. Mm -hmm. It's not that the coach tells you anything about how to do these things. The coach tells you how to be aware of yourself. Mm -hmm. And and that is key to both being a good leader and to teaching other people to be good leaders. How did you get to the to the director? Can you tell us how, how you decided to become the director of the FMI for fifteen years? Like how did that happen? Well, I mean I I it was really by chance and so I had been a group leader at the Swiss Institute for Cancer Research for 16 years or fifth, my whole career, independent career. And I moved to Geneva where I had done my postdoc. Actually, they had asked me to move to Geneva multiple times. But finally, I, I felt it was time. I had been at ISREC 15 years. I just needed a change. So I moved to Geneva and it was really fantastic. It was a department, everybody was working on chromosomes or chromatin in some way, except Jean-David Rocher, who was doing RNA, who was a great scientist. They had raised lots of money, several hundred, uh, six or seven hundred thousand just to install my lab. So I had all the latest microscopes all to myself. I thought I had landed, you know, like this was where I was going to spend the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. And three years later, I got a phone call would I be interested in leading the Friedrich Miescher Institute? And I really, I almost just said no and hung up. But then some voice in my head said, well, you should talk to them. Who knows? <laughs> and the more I learned, uh, the more it became attractive. So after just three and a half years in Geneva, I, I accepted. And this, of course, irritated my colleagues in Geneva enormously after doing these enormous efforts to get me there. And I still feel bad about it. But I also had dinner with Jeff Schatz, who I've already mentioned. 
And I told him, you know, they've approached me about being director of the Friedrich Miescher Institute. What do you think? And he said, that's a chance of a lifetime. You have to, do <laughs> you have to seize it. <laughs> Just do it. How did you feel you were, you were ready to, to become such a director? Ah, uh, yeah, you know, I have tons of self-confidence. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I wasn't sure, but. It's not that big an institute, like 350. They're like 20. At the time, there were about 20 group leaders. At the most, we were 24. I think it helped that already at ISREC, I had been the representative of the group leaders on a board. And then in Geneva, um, it's a small department, but they wanted me to be chair of the department. I, I just felt that I had seen lots of different environments not only Geneva and, and Basel and, and uh, Lausanne, but I had, you know, of course, visited the LMB and many, many places. I just felt I could do this. What, 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 was, what was the biggest challenge as the director of the FME and, and how did you deal with that? Oh, there are lots of challenges. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there were three big challenges. Internally, it was that there were seven or eight very successful scientists who were approaching 65, uh -huh. and they all wanted prolongations to stay on. And this is why I'm retired exactly on <laughs> age 65, <laughs> because the first thing I had to do was make rules about retirement, because everybody thinks they're an exception. <laughs> everybody <laughs> thinks they can be prolonged. And of course, some of them were some of the most highly published and cited and so forth. And he, and they were, you know, 15 years older. I was 49. They were 65 or between 60 and 65. So the first thing I did was make rules. And I said, well, I, I set up a PhD program. I uh, created facilities. They had some facilities, but I expanded core facilities. And I made rules about re retirement. And I didn't make exceptions. Until Denis Monar, who had been the director, hit 65, and I, I gave him two more years because he had been director at interim, and I felt he deserved it. But that was one big challenge. Second big challenge is, of course, interacting with the industry. Pharma uh, interesting. is a completely different world, <laughs> and I had never, I had never even thought about startups or patents or. I'm not a practical person, as as Novartis now knows. <laughs> um, I mean, actually, I found it very interesting the whole drug development, the whole concept, how you organize pharmaceutical research and pharmaceutical application. But the thing that I really had trouble with was the hierarchy. I am totally a non-hierarchical person. And I learned that from Jeff Schatz, too, because he had been in the U.S. He was Austrian. He came back after 15 years in the U.S., and he made everybody speak English. And if they spoke German, he used du and not sie. So in French, tu and not vous. <laughs> with everybody, even with the dishwasher, with the, with the floor sweeper, everybody. And this was his way to say... So I am a big professor. You're just as important as I am. I was raised in the U.S., so this was kind of natural or semi-natural, but he really reinforced that for me. So then to confront the natural hierarchy in a company, a big company with a chairman of the board, an executive committee, 120,000 employees. I mean, this is big time. It was a challenge to learn how one functions in that uh, environment. 
Of course, I've always been one of the few women, not only in industry, but all along. And that didn't really help. It was a very steep learning curve. Running the Institute was not a big challenge. They were eager to have a new director. I was really welcomed. So there wasn't really a problem to run the Institute. So you were not alone when you arrived. You had the support. I had the support. I, I didn't have to win support. And this was really great. The big problem was a retirement policy, learning about hierarchy in the industry, and then adapting back to Germanic rules. So <laughs> I had spent 25 years in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, which is a bit more like France, and there are rules, but you don't always follow them. <laughs> you do what is pragmatic. And I had to readapt to towing the line absolutely on everything. And that... That sounds minor, and but absolutely, as an institute director, if you don't tow the line, then 350 people don't tow the line, and that's a no-go. You set these rules to encourage retirement of the older faculty, and then you set a good example showing that rules had to be followed, and then you got to 65. So <laughs> how do you feel, how do you feel about, about stepping down? How has that been, and... Well, already three years ago, I told the board, I want to step down by 2019. Please start looking for a new director. And they didn't do anything. <laughs> so, you know, like a year went by, you know, and I, I even gave them a protocol, you know, first this. <laughs> Everything written, you just have to follow. I, I did. I, I wrote it down. I, you know, I, I, and, and then I gave them When nothing happened, I gave them a timeline for the protocol. Did you, did you take them for a beer? Yeah. No, I didn't. I really should have. And and I think they didn't really believe it. But then I said, um, I'm going to step down because I want, I had an ERC grant. And I realized that, you know, for 15 years, even though I was publishing, I always had a, you know, a very active lab. I had never been able to fully devote myself to my science. You know, there were always, I always read the literature just before I wrote a paper rather than really following the way I like to follow. So um, I said, I want two years when I can just do science. And that's what I'm doing. And, and it's perfect. I love it. I mean, this whole corona thing, and, and, and I didn't even have to worry about you know, if the if the right orders have gone out at the right time and if everybody's following the rules. And I have to say, I loved running the Institute. I love the FMI, but there's a continual pressure on you, a worry that things might go wrong. Because you feel responsible and... Because you feel responsible and you are responsible. The buck stops here, you know, and really you are responsible especially when you're linked to a company, they make you know you're responsible for that. <laughs> I think I hit a stress level where I just said, it's not just that I, I want a fun two years of doing science. I, I, I hit a stress level where I said, I'm not having fun. Mm -hmm. I have two offices. I always had two offices. I had the director's office on the fifth floor and I had my lab on the second floor. And I found myself... You're spending more time in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, not enjoying going up to the fifth floor. You know, all these are signs. And, and when you get these signs, you've got to listen to them. It doesn't matter. So I, I had no problem with it. The only question was how to coordinate this with the search. There was an academic committee identifying candidates and, and I was totally out of the search. I had nothing to do with it apart from writing the protocol. <laughs> and, uh, 
in the end, it had to be Novartis that acted because since they chair the board, the foundation board, we are a foundation and not-for-profit foundation, but all of the seats on the foundation board are Novartis people. So it was really in their hands. And then there was, uh, once it was clear that there was a short list and things were going forward, I, I knew I could step down and it's been great. And actually, I'm, I, I mean, I'm leaving FMI at the end of the year and you could say, well, why? Why would you leave it? You could just stay on and, you know, break your own rules. But um, it's not only the principle. I think there's a time when you need to just break. It's pretty imprinted into me, the, the role of director. So it'll be better for the Institute if I leave. Yeah, time, time to, to, to look back and see what you have achieved and move on to something new. You said something about women in science a bit before, and this is a topic we want to talk with you. And to, to first get into this topic, we have read that you admire uh, many women scientists, such as Marie Curie and, and Dorothy Hopkin, if I say it right. Hopkin. <laughs> French accent. We wanted to ask you first, uh, why are there your scientific heroes? Uh, because... They especially followed their love of science at a time when it was really not common for women mm -hmm. to do science. So it was clear that they loved what they were doing. And when you read about their lives, uh, I mean, Marie Curie, everybody's read, but Dorothy Hodgkin, well, even Rosalind Franklin, but there are many others. They really did this against all odds, you know, like being a scientist had to be in their blood, in their heart. Dorothy Hodgkin is my scientific grandmother because my father did his uh, PhD with Dorothy Hodgkin. <laughs> wow. Well, you had a great okay. grandmother. <laughs> do you think that those challenges are still actual today? Do you, do you... Of course they are, but much less, and they don't have to bother you. Of course, I've done a lot to, to mentor and, and promote women in science. And the last five years, I was chairing a gender commission of the Swiss National Science Foundation, and we created some new programs for funding women. I think the challenges are different now. Of course, it's still an issue in the sense that women are not expected to lead, or at least not a priori, especially young women. I think by the time, you know, you get 50 and you have some success under your belt, then it's almost like they want you to lead, you know, like we, if we choose a new institute head or EMBL head or head of EMBO or head of anything, we look for a woman. I think until you get up to a certain point, there is kind of an expectation that, first of all, it's reflected in the self-doubt that young women have right around the age of 30 to 35, whether they want to invest what it takes to be a leader. And they look, they look at the leaders and they don't see themselves. I've had even women say that about me. They look at me and they say, well, yeah, but you, you know, I'm not like you. And I said, well, you know, you didn't see me at 35. You know, maybe I was just like you. I think what it is, is young women in that childbearing age and, and so forth, whether they have family or not, They think very carefully about decisions and taking on responsibility and whether they will do it well or not. Whereas men at that same age just sort of go headlong because all of society expects men between 30 and 35 to be at the peak of their, you know, adventuresomeness. I think it's that juxtaposition which makes women in science hard. Getting beyond that, you know, I mean, maybe there's some um, uh, later in 
uh, prejudice as women advance up the academic ladder. But basically, I think it's the same hurdles. Everybody has to pass for tenure and so forth. So, or for, you know, promotion. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on something that, that I, I personally feel having tried to promote and support young women in science, which is you mentioned uh, at the beginning of your career, how upset you had been that you had upset a colleague. And then you had said the most important thing about a mentor is not to set up competition. Do you think that women do science differently and that science, the scientific community would be different, maybe less competitive, more cooperative or different if there were more women in leading in science? Um, I think so. Yes. I, I mean, I think, you know, it's just less about me and more about the science. I mean, more, more, most women would say that there are very few women who would say, I do science for my, for advancing myself. I don't know any woman who would say that. In my whole zillion women scientists I know, I don't know a single woman who would say, I do science to advance my status or my respect among people. I think we do it because we love science. I think we do like success. There's nothing wrong with liking success. And actually, you know, I'm pretty ambitious. Even in card games, I like to win, you know, I mean, or <laughs> I've long given up winning foot races, but, you know, put me in a competitive situation. I like to win, but it's not that I would choose a career or a responsibility to advance myself in some way. It just doesn't come into my vocabulary. And so in the same way, cooperation, collaboration is foremost in my mind. And when I see that teams get so much more done than individuals, it just makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. We work in teams. In my lab, everybody works in teams. Nobody works as an individual. That's it. So one thing you have won is all these Women in Science Awards, the EMBO, FEBS, uh, Weizmann Institute. So congratulations for that. Why do you think these awards are important? Why, what is the value of having these Women in Science Awards? Well, they did influence me to be more engaged, to be more actively engaged. In fact, I didn't join that committee, the Commission of um, Gender Equality, they call it, in Switzerland. And then I chaired it, actually, before I got the awards. And I mean, it was sort of like this same awareness, self-awareness thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't a different person before or after, but I realized, ah, some people see me as a role model. Honestly, it took me to age 55 to figure out I was a role model. And then I thought, well, if I am a role model, I should do something about this, you know. And then I have been much more active because of the award. I think it had a very positive influence. You know, I mentored women my whole career, particularly when I was in Geneva and Lausanne, because a lot of French women came to my lab and I had a very high rate of success of them going on to be group leaders. But I only thought about it within my own laboratory. And then these awards pushed me to do something beyond my laboratory, beyond my own team. So I think that's what awards are good for. And you might even go so far as to say, why do we give Nobel awards? Well, it makes these people decide that they are messengers of science to the world, <laughs> to governments, to anything. I mean, Maybe they aren't all good at it. <laughs> Maybe I'm not even a good uh, mentor, I mean, a messenger about women in science, but I think I am. You know, you, awards put a label on you that you think you better live up to. 
In France, we have the, la Fondation L'Oréal that gives prize for, for, for young, young women scientists. For what I've seen, I don't know if this is general rule, but I've met a lot of young women scientists that self-censor themselves somehow. What advice could you maybe give them to tell them to go for it? Yeah, that, that's a very common, I call it self-doubt. You call it self-censoring. It, it is, I think it's cultural. I, I just tell it to them straight. I said, you have to sell yourself. You may think that you're good, but you have to convince other people that you're good. And I tell them almost the same thing that we talked about before. Realize that people can't know how good you are until you tell them how good you are. This comes very naturally to men. It sounds silly to say you have to tell somebody that, but a lot of women, uh, young women, extremely capable, they don't sell themselves in their job talk. There are always some who do, and, and they are naturals for that. I don't know. I, I, I think if somebody, if a woman really feels uncomfortable doing that, then there's no way around it. Because in science, you do have to, you do have to communicate communication of your ideas, communication of your research, communication of your achievements is part of being a scientist. And, and frankly, I loved it. Um, again, I learned it from Jeff Schatz. He was a consummate speaker. He could get up and hold an audience in his hands without a single slide for 45 <laughs> minutes. Wow. You know? Sometimes he gave chalk talks and drew on the board. And sometimes he just used words. You know, this is a This is an art. This is like playing music. This is entertainment. I never reached his height of performance, but it is a performance and you have to think about it as a performance. In that sense, you're putting on a show when you give a speech or when you give a talk or when you describe your results. So if I tell women that, then they dissociate it from Oh, you know, I really don't want to brag. Oh, I really don't want to, you know, put on airs or something like that. If you just tell them, you know, this is like art. This is like, like playing a, a sonata. Then that helps them, some of them. And then some of them just don't like that at all. And I don't know what to do at that point. So we, we're going to wrap up this first half in, in a moment. But just before, um, so you said some of these awards are useful because they give labels and make you think about how you represent the community and how you give back. Do you have some closing remarks about the challenges facing European science? Yeah. See, I am a big believer in European science. I had many offers to go back to the States and my husband and I never went back because At some point, I had the feeling that Americans were all doing the same experiments. When it was too hybrid, everybody did too hybrid. It, it was like big waves of, of technology. And I always felt that at least in Switzerland and I think across Europe, I could be an independent creative thinker. And maybe I didn't have as big a lab. Maybe I didn't have as much money, but I was more creative. And I do think European science is more creative. Um, there are creative, obviously creative <laughs> individuals in the U.S. I'm not belittling that at all. But the science politics favors individualism and creativity in Europe, I think, and not large scale, you know, sort of high throughput type science or very large uh, teams. That's probably why, you know, the human genome was sequenced in the U.S. 
uh, Europe, you know, barely got through the yeast gen. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, um, but I think Europe has a lot of creativity, and I think they have a lot even of um, ability to think about application. And where they fall flat is the bridge between academic research and applied research or um, bridging to uh, implementation, I call it. So my advice is um, maintain the discovery research because that's what we do so well. Mm -hmm. We train people extremely well. We train them to think on their feet and think independently. But then, then our good ideas are used by others all the time, again and again. And I, I just don't know what to do about it except to say we need to really invest in young people who want to do startups or want to do this translation and give them a go and let them fail because it takes a lot of failure to make a success. So we have to change this attitude about failure in economic terms. If if you make a startup and it fails, so what? That's You should put it on your CV as, you know, a great <laughs> experience, you know. So this is what I would say to Europe. We do need to be sure that we maintain the creativity, the differences, the diversity. Even I like the diversity of national differences yeah. in national funding and so forth. I find that interesting. Foster something special. So we, I agree. Hear the, the plea to put a failure section on your CV. Yes. And we, so we're going to finish up the first half having explored your CV from the beginning to the end. And then the second half, we're going to talk a bit more about Susan. Hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Rono Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette and please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. Welcome back to the Lonely Pipette. In the second half, we explore more about the, the individual behind all these um, titles. So you told us you've been director of the FMI and director of many, you're on many committees and many boards, uh, and you've been running a research team. How do you manage all that? What, what are the tricks? Don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good no, advice. I, <laughs> no, I, um, you know, when there were lots of frustrations and burdens of running the Institute, I made sure that I took the weekend off. So we always had a house in Lausanne. We had a, a flat in Basel. And I would just go physically away. So I would not think about institute worries. And then I would, you know, maybe take a day where we just do walk or shop or whatever we wanted to do, cook together, whatever, family thing. Then I could, like on Sunday, just read scientific things. But really disconnecting especially when you have a lot of administrative job tasks. You need to dissociate. The other thing I tried was to divide my day. And initially I said, okay, I'll, I'm, my, my mind is better in the morning, so I'll do science in the morning and institute in the afternoon. But that never works. And I, I'll tell anybody who is going to be doing this dual job, that never works because all the meetings that you have to do to run an institute and to liaise with everybody – 
they're not going to adapt to your morning. Uh, I'm not available in the morning. You know, that just doesn't work. So what I did was have, I already mentioned this, one office where I only did admin things and one office where I only did science. And when I came downstairs, you know, it was like immersion in another world. I would only think science. And when I was upstairs, you know, I had a different computer and I would only deal with the administration and problems of the institute. You, you can go to seminars and each of them will think you're in the other office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Basically, splitting is very important. Clean break between uh, different tasks. The other thing was I, I actually... I really did work like 150% for the first 10 or 12 years. That was also why when it came to 15 years, I just said, I'm I'm exhausted because I, I really did sleep maybe only four or five hours a night. So that was not good. Just to get, you know, lab and institute. And then, of course, I had university titles, so I had to teach. And then there were lots of committees that got increasingly uh, demanding. So, yeah, I, I hit a threshold. But... You, you can handle it because you get better at some things and things that would take hours 15 years ago, I could do in 10 minutes, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is something that our listener can apply today, you think? Or is there another improvement that helped you in your work organization you want to share with us? Well, of course, keeping healthy. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like I was very healthy if I was only sleeping four or five hours a, a night, but actually that's <laughs> about what I need. I think um, really healthy eating and, and sports. I, I have always run. I'm not a champion runner, but I run a couple 10K races a year. And, and, you know, it's just that keeping yourself in shape is very important. As being a director or team leader, everything, how, how do you choose uh, what to say no to? Ah, how to say no. That's the, yeah, that's one of the hardest things in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really a fault I have. I also, I mean, I learned to delegate. I delegated a lot. Actually, when you said, how did you manage? I really did delegate. And not only did I delegate, but it's a trick to delegate to the right people. <laughs> I became a, a good judge of who would achieve if I delegated it to somebody. I let the people in my lab be very independent. And when I hired them, I hired them to be independent. It's a question of, you know, surrounding yourself with people who can handle independence. Um, how to say no. I, I got to a point where I said, I will not say yes to anything new until I get off something else. So I found, you know, sort of like the homeostasis I could manage. And then I said, I will not accept anything new, not even a seminar, not a talk until I finish or say no to something else or get off of a committee. So did you have to refuse a lot of podcasts to say <laughs> yes to us? <laughs> You you would be surprised, but I, I'm much more relaxed. <laughs> Can we dig deep, a little bit deeper? Do you, what's your morning routine look like? Weightlifting. <laughs> really? I mean, not big ones, but uh, 10K and like that. And then uh, then coffee with milk, so a cappuccino. And then, uh, then I work. I really am best like from five to seven. If I have to write something or if I have to prepare anything... I always reserve those hours for, I don't know if you'd say creative thinking, but... Um, <laughs> so, so you get up at five? Yeah, but then I go to bed pretty early. 
Yeah. Were there a time you, you started to wake up at five or you were always waking up at five? Well, of course, you know, when you have a two-year-old or a, a child, you always wake up at five. I, I, at least the, our child. <laughs> you know. So I did not have a child who slept uh, much. Actually, there was a time when after he, he, he would go to bed as a, you know, a toddler and I would go back to the lab. And then I would stay till 11 or 12, and then I would not get up so early. If left to my own, you know, no family concerns, no, then I'll, I'll wake up at five, yeah. And then that's a really nice time of clear thinking. And I do it in my pajamas or whatever. I don't get dressed. No, nothing to distract you. And no shower. I mean, I'm just me, straight out of bed, coffee, That's the freshest time that's you can get enormous things done in a few hours. What, what, is, what is something that our listeners might be surprised to discover about you? Mm, that I used to be a good cook. <laughs> 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 I can tell you, I haven't cooked for years because I, could, I never had time. I never had time to go shopping. I never have time to do anything. At one time, I was a really good cook. I mean, now if I have a dinner party, I have a caterer because I've lost it completely. So you, now you're going to be getting up at five in the morning to cook. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's, you know, long gone. It's like a lost art. Maybe, maybe it comes back. I don't know. That would be an excuse I would use too, because my father is a cook teacher and everybody's told me like, how, how, you, how comes you're not that good at cooking? I say, yeah, lab, lab work. It really got to the point where like, first of all, you know, there were lots of dinners out, interview, you know, when we were hiring a lot of people, taking out all these people out to dinner. And then when I did have a day, a day where I didn't have to go out to a restaurant, then I would eat nothing because I had to compensate for all these dinners out. I was becoming like a balloon. So I gave up cooking. And I think people would be surprised to know that I actually was a good cook. But. <laughs> <laughs> What if now we, we move to another topic that we, we love to, to talk with our guests is about a bit fears and challenges. Can you tell us about a major fear that you have had in, in your career and what you would recommend to our listeners if they face the same fear? I mean, I guess I really fear making a really big mistake scientifically, like really uh, publishing something that's really wrong. Now, there are always things in your papers, like three years later, you realize, you know, that something isn't exactly the way you published that. I'm not talking about little things that you learn with the evolution of science is not, wasn't interpreted correctly or wasn't exactly right. But the fear of really being very wrong, and I think that's a healthy fear, but it does make me maybe repeat things over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> my people, my poor people suffer from my fear of, uh, is it really right? So what you're saying to, to, to us and, and to, to the people that will listen is like, this is fair to have this fear. Well, maybe it holds me back a little bit. So it's a balance to have. Yeah. I think the problem is, um, then sometimes you don't publish first or you don't publish until you see somebody else has the same data or something like that. But The other thing is um, fear of someone cheating. And, and that came actually uh, from encountering someone who had cheated. Mm -hmm. 
and seeing how much damage it did and how one might not know, you know, somebody presents you just results and you just don't know, did they really do the experiment? But, you know, both these fears are kind of inherent in good science, but you don't want them to become dominating. Otherwise, I don't know. I I never feared not getting promotion or not getting funding or not getting recognition because I think I would be happy without those things as long as I could do what I wanted to do. Maybe you were just like working and acting one step through another without worrying too much about what is foreign. Right. I think that's important. You know, if, if at age 30, I said, I, I want to be a professor, I want to be an institute director, then I would have had fear of not achieving those goals. You know, a fear, it's a completely different thing. It was a fear that I wasn't giving enough time to my family and son. That's a very um, female thing, I think. No. <laughs> no? No. It's not just a female thing. It's a fear that, you know... I never felt I had to give up my science to raise a family, but there was always that fear, you know, especially in those young years where you're you're not yet tenured and you're you know you don't know how things are going to go, and there's a fear of this might not work. I think you grow out of that. I think the the more innate fear is that fear that you might do damage to your most beloved by loving your science, you know? So this balance is, I think, something we always have to work at. And balancing uh, home life or family life and, and career life is a constant activity. You can't just accept it. You can't just take it for granted. So you've had a, a, a fantastic career, both scientifically, your scientific contribution, and you've managed to combine that with leadership. What's an accomplishment that you're most proud of? I mean, I, I think FMI. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, and it's not really my accomplishment. It, it just happened, but I kind of helped shape it. It happened a few years ago that I was somewhere someone referred to FMI and said, oh, it's one of the best institutes of Europe. And, it, you know, it was like, wow, somebody said that about FMI, <laughs> you know, like, whoa, maybe it was just to please me. It wasn't actually to me, it was to somebody else. And really up to that point, it was just all about trying to make things work and hiring good people and setting up facilities and making a good environment for doing research. So it wasn't like I knew where I was going. But to hear that, that was really, really rewarding. And then if you say, you know, does that outclass any single scientific discovery? Probably not. But I have a real hard time. I love so many different papers. (laughs) It would be very difficult to say which of our scientific achievements uh, And it would be unfair to anybody I didn't mention. (laughs) I I guess another accomplishment, I always wanted to make the leap from yeast to a a complex organism, not a mouse and not human. So, I mean, something smaller. Actually, even before when I was at ISREC, I had thought to go on sabbatical and learn C. elegans. But when I came here to FMI, so 15 years ago or 16 now, I could start a small group, one postdoc, and that one postdoc set up the study of C. elegans heterochromatin. You know, now looking back, you know, we've had a whole series of cell papers. It's not that cell papers are so important, but to come to a new field and kind of be able to have a big impression in it, I think that was 
a challenge that I feel very good about that we managed. Great. So, so we're, we're going to start to wrap up. We have a question that we like to ask all our guests, which is um, if you were to meet yourself 20 years ago, or maybe a little bit more, what, what, what advice would you give before the FMI days? Yeah, yeah. What advice would you give? Yeah. So I've already done this once in a letter to myself, <laughs> a, a letter to my younger self. I was asked to write that years ago. Okay. So it's easy to answer. Have a second child. My husband and I only have one son. He's wonderful. He's fantastic. But I remember when he was four, you know, we had this discussion. I mean, I, this sounds very personal, but I mean, I, I imagine dozens of professional couples have this discussion, yeah. you know, like, well, if we're going to have another child, we better do it now. And then you're thinking, I come up for tenure next year and, and you, you don't have a permanent job yet and, you know, and stuff like that. And we never decided to have the second child. And I just kind of think then you're 40 and I would just tell people there's never a right time to have children. Just do it. And I totally believe that having a family makes you a better scientist and having a family makes you a better leader and having a family makes you a better director. I believe completely that it changes your life. It eats enormous amounts of time and energy and emotion, but it's absolutely the best thing you can do in your life. And you learn from it. And you learn you from it. That, that's fantastic. Thank you. So so we, we are going to wrap up and to finish with this interview, we, we want to ask you, where can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, there's the FMI website, but within the FMI website, there's a Gasser Lab website, but it's horribly out of date. It's like four years out of date. <laughs> so, Susan, thank you very much for giving us so much of your time and, and your down to very personal um, insights. Thank you very much. You've had a fantastic career and, and really I... We, we recognize this, not only a commitment to science, but also a commitment to leadership and commitment to women in science. This is So thank you very much for everything you've done. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And for, for these pearls of wisdom. My Thanks pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please, share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipette mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show and remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the Lonely Pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt. A bientôt. Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes Electro Swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.